Hello, NSA, and welcome to the July-August issue of Voices of Experience. I'm your host, Jim Cathcart. You know, this year I promised you that we would have meaty interviews and insights from active, successful speakers and business leaders, that you would get a better understanding of different business models and success techniques that have already been proven by others, that you would understand NSA from the inside as well as the outside. And I've sought to cover all of the different professional competencies and all the different styles of doing business for you. Our theme this month is payoffs, and we have a great lineup for you. Let's get started. Our first interview is Laura Stack, the Productivity Pro. You were president of NSA, and then you made some big decisions going into that, and you came out of that in a very dramatic way as well, and you're in a good place right now, and, and I'd like us to learn about that. That actually was by design, because having spoken with enough past presidents about how busy I would be with chapter programs and now you know seven international conventions, I knew that rather than just being the keynote or the trainer that required me to be on stage... Uh, that I was going to have to replace some of that lost incomes. I said, wow, how can I right now, as vice president, by the time that I end my presidential year, how am I going to recover the income that I know I'm going to have to turn away? And so now, having put those items in place, um, they are really coming to fruition now. And so it's exciting to see the mix of my business having so, changed. So Take us through that thought process. Anyone could see that mobile was going to be the way to go, um, that digital content was going to be the way to go, and the writing was on the wall. You know, I had published at that time four books all through major publishers. All on the subject of being the productivity pro. Yes, all on productive topics. And so whether it was on productivity at work or high performers or efficiency, they were all under that umbrella. And the advances had gone away. Uh, My last book uh, published by Barrett Kohler, they tell you right out front, we don't give you an advance. We spend the money that we would have advanced you on marketing, and to their credit, they did, and I was very pleased with that. But when I started looking at how the sales were going on eBooks, that's really where I decided to focus uh, my time and looking at all of the various channels. How can I take my content and distribute it? Mm -hmm. So I really started looking at, at royalties, at partnerships, at licensing, at channels, to distribute my knowledge um, through other people. I really wanted to be able to be on the road with NSA and get a check in the mail. You've built a business that is now a machine. I mean, it generates the revenue. The sales are happening. You have so many distribution sources. Can you give us kind of a laundry list tour of the various things you've done, how how that's working for you? Sure. Um, Maybe I can just position it as where the checks come from. That'd be the best (laughs) way I can think of to talk about it. Okay. You know, clearly books. That that would be the first one. So Mm -hmm. still getting royalty checks on the published books, which, of course, have their own e-version, audio version, Kindle version, um, summary version, global write. Um, I get checks from sponsorships. For example, taking your expertise 
what is it that you um, can communicate to an audience that someone else is interested in communicating to that same audience? Give us an example of that one. Well, so in my case, uh, being a productivity expert, Daytimer was interested in working with me. They, they, the personal calendars and organizers. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. the time management company, yep. Daytimer. And they sent me their planner and said, hey, you know, can you can you talk about us in front of people? Well, um, and actually at the time, it was funny. I sent it back and I said, here are the 17 reasons why I can't use your planner. <laughs> <laughs> so they they said, would you, would you create one for us? Oh. So, of course, you know, so I had the Productivity Pro Planner. Now, Daytimer, of course, has changed course. You know, paper is quickly becoming passe. They were bought by ACO. All kinds of things happen. But there are some great alliances there, some strategic alliances and other opportunities that came out of that. Anybody who's interested in an audience that wants to be more efficient, move faster. So Microsoft has been a big sponsor, still continues to be. These are all wonderful ideas, and it makes me salivate as a business person thinking about doing things like that for myself. (laughs) How did you recognize those opportunities and then do the first steps that helped convert them into something substantial? You know, I first was out there already having been published, having a name, having a brand. The more you built your brand, brand, the more they wanted to talk to you. Yes, and so they all um, approached me. I have never been a proactive go out and find a sponsor. I mm-hmm. think the ones that you know really want you will come to you. And so in this case they all they all did. Wow. Yeah. So that's you know that's another great place. Yeah. And then you know looking at the webinar channel. Mm-hmm. I was one of the ones who kind of jumped in feet first with webinars and started doing them for my own company um, since 2008. So yeah. I've been doing one webinar a month, so 2008, 9, 10, So you 11, promote 12. the webinar, you sell the that's enrollments right. in it. Mm-hmm. That's to all. our list, you know, okay. we have a, it's a small but mighty list, about uh-huh. 20,000 people, but they are all interested in productivity. They are yeah. productivity enthusiasts. So that's the thing, I've known you've always been, whether you use the term or not, the productivity pro. Mm-hmm. You've always been about that. I about being more efficient, more productive, more more useful in the things that you do. Yeah, and I really just pay attention to how do I take my expertise and that framework and change it. And it's kind of like different lanes. You know, I'm going down this lane. Like right now, I'm, my next book is on efficient leadership execution because right now, execution is the big word. Everybody yeah. wants speed and agility and acceleration. And it's just, and, it's it's yeah. being so engrossed in it. It's knowing what I do and what I don't do. So if someone says, well, do you teach leadership? Well, I teach leaders how they can help their teams and their employees be more productive. Is that something you're interested in? Yes. So in fact, I have a column in Training Magazine every month online called Super Confident Speaking. And it's about breaks and timing and cutting and Mm -hmm. expanding and being efficient in your stories. And, you know, know, and so, yeah, you really can kind of twist anything to fit that topic. But knowing what you're really gifted at and what you don't like, yeah. you know, and then being able to talk your clients in that direction. And well, you've gotten very creative when it comes to creating eBooks, and then that becomes the beginning of a tree. Oh, boy, that's Would another system. Would you describe system. that process? Oh, <laughs> yes. Well, so with the webinars, for example, you give a webinar, and then, of course, I have it transcribed. Mm-hmm. But as you know, the spoken word is not the same as the written word. So I take the video then I have the transcription that turns into an ebook. Mm-hmm. Then I can have the ebook, or sometimes I'll write a white paper that's perhaps 
20 pages, then I'll record that. Yeah. So that might be an MP3. You know, so you can go either direction with it. It can be right. text first and then then recorded, or it can be recorded first and then. And I think that's yeah. really critical to have all of those modalities. You know, now that I have the time. I'm doing all sorts of other fun things. I've developed another division of my company called Productivity Pro Press. That's probably no shock to you. Publishing, yeah. Right? And so now looking at the different uh, distribution arms of how to get that message out there, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just really finding that you can look at retail channels. I look at corporate channels, uh, wholesalers, libraries, universities, audio. There's so many places, Jim. It's just exploding. And when you can do it yourself, get your own ISBN numbers, you know, find yeah. a partner who can convert everything to EPUB, get it uploaded and distributed, or, you know, or you can go through a partner to do that for you. Laura Stack has just very clearly pointed out that opportunity is all around us, that, you know, there's abundance waiting to be created. And it's up to us to bring that energy to the table and make it happen. You got to get out there and shake it up. You know, you got to be always pushing, always changing, always growing, always learning. And uh, NSA is the best place to do that. I am more convinced of that now than ever before, Jim. Outstanding. Well, thank you, Laura. I appreciate your spending some time with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Jim. And now, a speaking legend. Today, I have the privilege of chatting with our good friend, Tom Hopkins. Now, Tom Hopkins is one of those folks that got into this business before he was old enough to even know how to do it. Tom was a young guy that had made a big hit in the real estate world and and became one of the first major sales and motivational leaders in the field of real estate. And then he branched out from that into the broader world. Tom, welcome to Voices of Experience. How did you start in business and what made you decide to become a sales trainer? Just that first phase. Well, I was a construction worker. I didn't go to college. And after a year of that, I I said, I've got to do something else. And luckily, my father uh, said, Tom, you got a nice way with people. Why don't you get a real estate license? And so at 18, just turning 19, I got my real estate license after failing the test three times. And everyone in life should find their niche. And, and I define the niche in life is you find a business that you earn an income, but you love it and it's not work. Yeah. That's what happened to me. I fell in love with real estate. I worked very, very hard. But it all paid off because I built a really good foundation. And after I did that for a total of almost eight years, I went to a convention, the National Association of Realtors Convention. And I was going to do a little breakout session to a small hundred person group in the afternoon. And I'm standing there in my suit. And suddenly, uh, Peter Lumbo, who was the uh, president of the uh, association, comes up to me and he says, Tom, Thomas Peter is caught in traffic and won't be here, so can you go on? Wow. And there was 5,500 people in that audience, and he says, but you can only talk till he gets here, but we need to fill the time. I only spoke for 12 minutes, but I gave them some, what I called pearls that they had never heard. And my phone started ringing, and real estate boards from all over the U.S. started calling me and all of a sudden I'm getting booked to speak and it just led from one thing to another to where, uh, gosh, I'm heading towards 5,000 one-day seminars. Wow. 
and it's, wow. been, it's been an exciting journey. One of the things that you did as a pioneer in our field was you started packaging the, the learning information in such a way that people could take it back home and train their own staff. Tell me a little about that. You're right. I, I did one of the first cassette training programs back many, 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 many years ago. Wow. If you really want to be a speaker or a motivator or trainer, you've got to sit down and have the discipline. It took me three years to write that first book. Mm-hmm. But you have to, I feel, for credibility, be an author. But it also forces you to organize your thinking in That's a linear right. fashion so it can be navigated logically and rationally. You've got to be able to impart that knowledge in the ways that make most sense for each audience. And the writing of your first book, whether it's published or not, tends to make that happen inside you. You're right. I think you get more out of writing your own book than the people reading it will. Indeed. How has your business model changed over the years? The fundamentals of selling, I don't think, will ever change. What I try to do, Jim, is if I'm having a seminar let's say in a certain industry, financial services, real estate, automobiles, whatever, mm-hmm. I will find some of the top salespeople in that industry that are right now in the street selling, and I'll try to have breakfast or dinner before the program and just pick their brains on what is the market like, what's the economy like, because I think the people in the audience want to know that you're not giving the same talk that you give to every single audience. So I do try customization that way. And I also try my best to give as much true, usable, take-home value to the message I'm teaching. I think you gotta be so careful that you, when you teach anybody, that they are coachable and that they can take what you teach and apply it. Speaking of the structure of your business, What forms has it taken over the years? At one point in my career, many years ago, I had five other people doing seminars somewhere in the world Mm -hmm. using our training. But the, the sad truth is that most people that are good at speaking and can command an audience respect and market products for a profit, they eventually want their own program. They don't want to be a Tom Hopkins clone. Yeah. So most of them, I'd spend two to three years really getting good, and then they'd go and do their own thing. As years went by, I had people that went out and marketed my video training systems so that companies could have in-house training with me on television. And, of course, you know, I update my books every two years. I have 17 now. And I try my best, Jim, to rewrite the material, not change it except to adapt it to the culture and the times. Yeah. Uh, Same with my audio and video messages. I try my best to update them. uh, But I will say this, what worked 30 years ago, if you implement it properly today, it'll work today as well. Exactly. But you have to culturize it. Now, do you have other people running your business or you run the whole show? Yeah, but I have been so fortunate to surround myself with great people. And that that is one thing I will say to anybody that's going to try to do our business is you got to surround yourself with the right people. Well, I think a lot of our members, NSA members, agree with the concept, but feel intimidated with the challenge of finding good people. Any tips you can give them on how to approach that? First of all, I think you need to really study the background of a person. There's a basic general rule. Show me your past, and it'll tell me a lot about your future. 
So I do a lot of probing. How long have they been on the with the company they're leaving? How do they feel about their management? Mm-hmm. Because what they say to you, they'll be thinking about in the next level, with, which is with us, or you. Yeah. yeah. And now you have a challenge. Also, I tied a lot in with their athletics in schools. Hmm. I found if they really love baseball or football, they played every year, four years in high school or college, that they had the disciplines of athletics, which are a lot like the disciplines of, of going into business. Discipline is a very important word in business. Doing what you don't want to do when the motivation to do it is gone. Yeah. It's not easy for everyone. What would you like the legacy of Tom Hopkins to be as it echoes down through the ages? My legacy would be that the people I taught teach others. And I have this philosophy that I got from Zig Ziglar, who was one of my closest friends. Mm-hmm. If you help enough people get what they want, you'll get everything in life that you want. Absolutely. I think my legacy would be that hundreds of thousands of folks are having a better life because they crossed my path. Wow. And if that happens, that's that's my life. That's a life well lived, isn't it? Thank you, Tom Hopkins. Thank you, Jim. All the best to all of you. Keep doing the best job you can. Today, I get to welcome to Voices of Experience, Dr. Thomas Armstrong. Thomas, welcome to VOE. Thank you for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. I'm a student of yours, as you know. You made it easier for me to learn, and I, I appreciate that. Is there a, a special way you think about academic and, and research-type information that facilitates that? Well, I've been kind of lucky because I do have a doctorate degree, but I have taken my uh, degree programs in independent study programs. So I've been able to stay outside of the academic world where you can really get your writing messed up. You know, you can get very esoteric and lose sight of the reader. And so I was fortunate to have some mentors, uh, educators like John Holt, who told me that when you're writing, you should write as if you're sitting across the table, the cracker barrel from somebody, just talking with them. And so I took that to heart. And so I began to say, okay, how can I translate? what Gardner's saying here into things that teachers can do, things that parents can do. I've written a book for kids, so you know how can kids understand this theory and use yeah. it? So that's really been my contribution to that area is uh, making the transition and making it uh, practical. Mm-hmm. Your specialty or your focus area, at least, has been the, the world of education. Yes. And you've done a number of works over the years. What's your latest focus? My latest focus is neurodiversity. And this is the idea that we should be thinking about people who have special ed labels like ADHD and learning disabled Mm -hmm. and autism and intellectual disability. And we should start thinking of them not in terms of a disability label, but in terms of a diversity label. We should think, you know, we honor biodiversity. We honor cultural diversity. Why don't we honor the differences between brains? You know, we don't say to a calla lily, you've got pedal deficit disorder. We honor (laughs) the calla lily for being what it is. And we should do the same things with the brains of individuals who think and act and behave maybe differently from ourselves. But it really is a diversity issue. So that's kind of my crusade right now to go into special ed and, you know, parents with um, worried parents Mm -hmm. and really talk with them about the uniqueness of their of their kids and of their students and so that they can begin to focus on their strengths instead of their deficits. 
Yeah, to treasure the uniqueness of them. Exactly. So that the deficits, by comparison, aren't nearly as profound. And then use the strengths to help them in their areas of challenge. You know, mm-hmm. just just yesterday I, I read an uh, item and I blogged on it that uh, it turns out that people who are dyslexic are actually wonderful code breakers. And mm. they're being used in the whole electronics eavesdropping and cyber uh, computer uh, crime kind of uh, thing in the U.K., and, uh, you know, there's one gift among many that people who yeah. are dyslexic have. And the thing I'd like to say to people in business, you know, people in business, uh, the movers and shakers can often be the people who have these labels because mm-hmm. they're the innovators. They're the people who think outside of the box. They may have difficulty decoding the printed word or paying attention for, you know, more than two or three minutes. But don't let that fool you because they may do things that innovate in a way that change your company. So we've got to appreciate the gift that each person brings. Now, if, if I were speaking on the subjects that you represent to a business audience where the purpose of that event is to advance the organization, if you were me, what would you focus on? Well, there's so many things I'd focus on, particularly the, the eight kinds of smart. There's been a lot of interest in emotional intelligence in the business right. industry, but the eight intelligences really expands beyond that. And I think people who are in customer service, for example, understanding that customers come to you with musical minds, they come to you with picture minds, they come to you with uh, nature-oriented minds, and to know what those minds are may make a huge difference in how you're able to acknowledge and appreciate them and really good, give good customer yeah. service. Something you said in your book, Seven Kinds of Smart, that really struck me was don't look at people and say, oh, he's number smart, forget the others. Right. You've got all of them. We've got all of them. Yeah. They're all resources. It's just They're a matter all... of which one's developed at which level. Yes, and then things happen to us when we're growing up. I mean, some of these intelligences get triggered by somebody showing us something. Somebody gave Einstein a magnetic compass when he was four, Mm -hmm. and he said that that turned him on to try to figure out what the universe was made of and how it worked. And the reverse is true. You know, we've all had experiences where we've been in school. Maybe we've drawn something we're really proud of, and we hold it up, and the teacher says, that's not what I told you to do. Look at what everybody else is doing. And we take that intelligence, and we just shove it right down down and never use it again. So the, the response we get from the rest of the world determines which ones we nurture and which ones we suppress. Exactly. I mean, the environment has a huge impact, but there's a lot to be said with genetics, too. I mean, we're born with different kinds of minds. It's good so stuff. What kind of speaking and consulting and training do you do these days? I'm doing a lot of different things. I'm uh, consulting in the Middle East. I just got back from Saudi Arabia last mm-hmm. month and did some trainings that were very fascinating. I mean, because the women were not allowed to be in the same room. They had to be across the hall and watch a video, you know, uh-huh. so you get that kind of cultural issue. And I had to change my my some of my presentation to kind of take that into consideration i'm doing a presentation for the institute for challenging disorganization this is these are a group of personal organizers who work with people who have trouble getting their act together so i'm going to talk with them about the gifts that are associated with attention deficit disorder how that's not just a disability but there's a lot of great things i mean they're great novelty seekers are highly creative you know and how to take that in, into consideration when they're working with people who are adhd and then of course i work a lot with school districts and uh, schools helping them to think about learning in different ways and beautiful yeah well i appreciate your spending some time with us here and i'm glad to see you back at nsa welcome home thank you jim it's great to be back Thank you, Thomas. 
Nobody has held more positions in the speaking world than Ed Scannell. Well, NSA, we've got a treat today. Ed Scannell is in the studio with me. Ed Scannell is the past national president of the American Society for Training and Development, the International Federation of Training and Development Organizations, Meeting Professionals International, MPI, the National Speakers Association. He's the, the former head of the Arizona State University Center for Executive Development. Welcome. Ed. Thank you. It's great to be here with you, Jim. One of the main values that I think our members can gain by listening to you is perspective. What are some of the insights? Here's something that I understand now that I didn't, didn't get before. Well, each of the ones you mentioned have been really, for me, a very important learning laboratory. And I think in all the groups you mentioned, whether it's the, uh, the International Federation of Training and Development Organizations, the uh, MPI, and certainly uh, the uh, uh, NSA activity, have all been little bits and nuggets of information you pick up. I have a, an interest in the field of governance. Uh, how organizations run and, and how different boards of directors operate. And I can credit, for example, my early years back with ASTD, the American Society for Training and Development, way back when, mm -hmm. for having sparked that interest and bringing in people to help us do with our long-range planning. And that I just came back recently from our national conference. They call it the World Education Congress for the MPI group meeting mm -hmm. in Las Vegas. And the gentleman who was the elected uh, president, uh, they use the term chair, was talking to that very point. You know, when you and I were around, we talked about 10 years plan and five yeah. years plan. And this gentleman, his name is Mike Dominguez, made a point along the line we're talking is that 10 years, no, five years, no, things are changing and moving so rapidly in the entire hospitality industry, we're talking maybe a year or two. And that's how fast things change. We've all seen in our own industry, speaking, oh, yeah. training, whatever, things are moving so, so fast, you gotta run like crazy even to stand still nowadays. They probably got an app for that. I'm sure, I'm sure they do, yes, yes indeed. Well, you know, it's interesting. I have an interest in the field of neuroscience, how the brain operates. And I think a lot of our speaker colleagues don't recognize the fact that the individual span of attention, when I do a program, I tell people to leave their phones on. They're going to leave mine anyway, and they're going to do either texting or tweeting. And the span of attention is not, not 45 minutes for a keynote. It's like five to seven minutes. So unless you shift gears or do something to get people involved, to get people engaged, you're going to lose them. Mm -hmm. uh, audience today are far younger. They're far more sophisticated, uh, far more experienced. And, you know, the old era of the talking head is dead, and rightly so. There's a parallel to that, and there's a danger in this. People listen to what you just said, and that's absolutely true, and so they assume that because these people are so connected, because they're so involved, and they're being exposed to things so early on, that they get it how important attitude is, that they get it how important spaced repetition is to learning, hearing a message over and over again over an extended period of time. They assume that the other people already understand oh, yeah. the importance of taking charge of your own personal growth. Yeah. And that was something that was sort of the heyday of NSA. That was the theme of all the things that we talked about. We were primarily motivators, humorists, and sales sure. trainers yeah. when we started yeah. the association. Well, you know, to that very point, I mentioned uh, the reference to the MPI, the Meeting Professional uh -huh. International. The last four or five years, they've had a, a very decided thrust towards some of the basics of adult learning. 
And one of the basic elements, one of the basic principles, indeed, of the laws of adult learning is called a law of effect, spelled E-F-F-E-C-T, the law of effect. And all that simply implies that people want to have fun. People learn best in pleasant situations. So the impact of climate setting and all those things at the very beginning of a program, we, we make first impressions, what, in a matter of probably mm -hmm. a, a few seconds. And some of those basic laws, getting people involved, I think are very, very much as relevant now, perhaps even more so, as they were way, way back when. You and I have been around this industry long enough to recall that way back when, if you thought about having fun in learning, I mean, come on, who are these college professors thinking we can have fun when we're learning? This is serious and business. With, with, I remember, you remember University Associates had a, a series of... Uh, manuals, I guess they were, on, sure. on meeting techniques. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Theirs was more dry. Yours is a very accessible, easy to use tool. Yeah, in tool. fact, that's a good point yeah. as well, is that the very birth of these books uh, was the outgrowth of some programs we had done for the National Training Group, ASTD. We do a series of train-the-trainer mm -hmm. programs. Well, let's change direction for a moment. People say, <clears throat> you know, things have changed, but a lot of things have remained the same as well. Right. And what I'd like is for you to share with us some of the points of view that toward NSA that you've picked up in non-NSA member. NSA is a member of a group called the CIC, which stands for the Convention Industry Council. It's a conglomerate, like an umbrella group of some 25 or 30 organizations, such as National Speakers Association, such as MPI, and we can go through whole alphabet soup, uh, yeah. fatality sales association execs. Several years ago, NSA, National Speakers Association, wanted to get involved and actually become member of the Convention Industry Council. And I think you recall where I'm going with this. They didn't we want were, us. They were, <laughs> they closed the door. Literally speaking, they did not want us, as you say. They would not even give us a time of day. And after three or four years of hopefully gently, you know, not knocking, but, you know, kind of looking through that door, uh, we were actually gained uh, admittance and uh, membership in it. And how things have changed, uh, the CIC Convention Industry Council has really not only embraced NSA, but the last couple of years, our executive director, our executive vice president, Stacey Tetchner, has not only been on the board of directors of that group, but he actually chaired the organization for a couple of years. So the point I'm making from the time they wouldn't even look at us now because of Stacey's yeah. involvement, I serve in what's called the... Uh, the CMP. CMP is like the CSP, but CMP is a certified meeting professional. Mm -hmm. And I serve on their board of directors, have for some time. And it's just fun, and this is going to sound immodest, but the way that they are now accepting speakers and certainly National Speakers Association as a player, as a full-time yeah. player in the field. And that is the reflection of a lot of contributions over the years that you and I fortunately had a chance to be in on. But when we decided to start certifying speakers, you know, we started doing that. We started structuring our meetings better. We started, we took all of our industry education and identified the core competencies and made sure everything related back to that. Right. And I think accumulative uh, validation that that right, gave NSA right, yeah. allowed others to to come to the conclusion hey these people really are yeah I think that's such an important right. point that uh, there is recognition I think not just with them but certainly outside of our field of the speaking uh, profession that meeting planners association execs 
whomever, whatever, are recognizing the importance of a CSP, for example, you know, yeah. getting some who's been there, done that type of thing, the certified speaking professional. Well, the certified association exec, you know, in that industry sure. is, is sure. highly revered. And Stacy Techner, our our leader, is right. is a CAE, and CMP, certified meeting professional. Right. You are you are one. Right. And we have other members who are. True. And mm-hmm. and we have members of our own staff who are. Exactly. So yeah. all the credentialing is, is taking place. There yeah. is increased recognition and appreciation, you know, for who we are and what we can do for it, an organization. It, it, outside of the United States, credentials are king. Oh, exactly. Very, very Man. true. That is so true. As, where did you go to school and what's your degree in? Yep. Well, you've served us well. You have been one of the most giving and dedicated leaders and workers in our entire association's history. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you're very 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 welcome. And on behalf of a grateful NSA, I'd like to say thank you for your service. Well, my pleasure. Always a treat working with you, Jim. Thank you. You all have a good day. Our guest today on Voices of Experience is Alan Carl. Welcome to Voices of Experience. Great to be here, Jim. You've done some amazing things. Let's start with the somewhat normal side. Tell us your story. I come from the world of marketing and advertising. I have run two uh, digital marketing agencies. So digital printing when we took from uh, typesetting into digital publishing at the time, desktop publishing, and then into the world of the Internet and digital marketing. Tell me about the transition. So I realized, like a lot of us, when we get at a point in our life that we decide we either need to go big or Or go go out (laughs) or change our lives. Mm -hmm. So I realized I wanted to be one of the big players. I wanted the big accounts. I wanted to go after the big business. This is 1998, 99. So I decided with other similar agencies all over the country that we did what's called a roll-up. I'm sure mm-hmm. business people will know that, a consolidation. We grabbed, over a period of about a year, 13 like-minded companies and rolled them up into one company. We called, uh, we call it still around today, Wirestone, which is a nationwide digital marketing agency. So Pretty much world, overnight. Yeah, your world got very complex comparatively in a very short period of time. Then what happened? The dot bomb happened end of 2000, 2001. All of a sudden... The stock market was crashing. Those companies that were racing to go public and had funny value to them all of a sudden mm-hmm. were worth nothing. We were on life support, so we needed money. So mm-hmm. a private equity company comes into this. They gave us $25 million. And I found myself in Las Vegas hotel room after a year of them involved in our company as an investor. All of a sudden they said, you know what, we're going to have a big strategy meeting. It was September 10th, 11th, and 12th, 2001. Oh. And they said, here's what we're going to do. And I kind of walked out of that meeting feeling empty. Hmm. And the next morning, the towers fell. And we continued on with our meeting. But when I drove home, leaving Las Vegas, I decided my time with this company was over. Next week, wrote my resignation letter. So I quit the company I had founded. Wow. It was a values choice, wasn't it? It really was. I I said to myself, these aren't people I would invite over and and cook a good meal and open a good bottle of wine. So there you were with... Your life before you, all kinds of options, and the freedom to make some choices without having to worry about income immediately. What did you choose? Well, the first thing I did, and I'm married at this time, Jim, Mm -hmm. is uh, I started another company because that's what I had known to do. And then I found myself doing what I was doing before, and our relationship with my wife was strained. So in a period of basically six months, I got divorced, and then I decided to hop on a motorcycle and travel around the world. What year was that? 
That was in 2004 is when I made the decision. I took off in 2005. 35 countries, 62,000 miles over five continents. Well, three years, I found myself still on the road, and at that point, it was time to come back, and there were still parts I didn't get to. But in the middle of that, Jim, the zinger is, in the middle of nowhere in Bolivia, it was on a dirt road, muddy, slipped in the mud, landed in the mud, my motorcycle, 400 pounds of motorcycle and 200 pounds of everything I owned, lands on top of my leg and crushes it, breaks it. Oh, what happened next? There were people there. And, you know, the, a lot of what I speak about is about connecting and the, the kindness of strangers. And it's amazing how I was able to, to get out of there. And then uh, after some recuperation and recovery, seven months later, I flew back to Bolivia, much to the amazement of friends and family. Oh, I, yeah, I can imagine. And continued the journey. So how does this relate to speaking? What can we share with other speakers that will help them make healthier life decisions fun, adventurous decisions, and still good, solid business decisions. Give us a little guidance. So I think the thing that we all have to recognize is that we all have passions and we all have interests that sometimes we put aside to pursue other things in life because we believe maybe they are better business decisions. But what happens here is we tend to lose maybe what's soul or what's inside of us that maybe not necessarily defines us, but is who we are. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's important to to realize that you can do what you want and you can make a business out of that. And that's what I've done in in speaking. Sure, I still do marketing and branding and help certain levels. As a consultant? As a consultant, yeah. Okay. When I took off on this trip, and part of the reason was, Jim, is three main passions I had. And that was motorcycles, of course, photography, and writing. And I kept a blog that had hundreds of thousands of views, million views by the time I was done. And so I could then pursue my dreams of travel because that, that of course, would be another passion I didn't mention. But now what I realized is that there's value in the experiences I have because the the lessons of connection with people, the lessons of travel and language and negotiation from borders to uh, the changes of uh, dialect in different countries to currency – all those things. Dealing with the danger, crime, and, people and like danger that. And yeah. crime and also having to deal with, yeah, fear, mm-hmm. confronting fear. And that kind of puts you in a, a vulnerable position, but it also puts you in a position of finding more opportunities yeah. and possibility. For me, I realize how important it is to just be authentic and be real and use that smile that you've got and connect with people. How do you keep it afloat? Where do you get income. You know, I've got really two phases of my um, my business life. I still have, fortunately, clients that hire me for my expertise on the branding and marketing. That mm-hmm. probably represents about 25% of my business. But I really love sharing this message of connection of people and about pursuing your passion and having dreams. So the 75% is divided between speaking and um, and right now, actually, I've been working on this very exciting book project, and that has consumed for the last two years my 75%. So I, the book project hasn't earned me any uh, revenue at this point, but mm-hmm. it will because it's part of my speaking business and part of my overall personal brand, as sure. we, we like to say. And then when I get in front of an audience, and we know as speakers this is what we like, is seeing the audience respond, laughing, clapping, 
gasping, whatever yeah. that is. Do you use a travelogue kind of a format for your your presentations? I open up with a video with, mm-hmm. with some good music, and I run on stage, I set the helmet down, I take off my jacket, and I begin my keynote. And my keynote tells these stories of connection and people and overcoming obstacles and facing fear and Mm -hmm. learning how to embrace change. And in those stories, of course, I bring in business lessons, but it's all with some great photography. I'm not talking to my slides, as you know, but I am am showing some real dynamic images that not only are great to look at, but they reinforce my message. They say, help tell the story. What speakers really need to do is learn how to differentiate, learn to have a very singular message, a takeaway that is memorable. Well, yours certainly sounds memorable. I don't expect anyone's going to hop on their motorcycle and travel the world. And I suspect, though, that you do have something, you want, a place you want to go. Now, whether it is that you really love to cook and you always thought about opening your own restaurant or being a chef, mm-hmm. you, know, you can go on that journey. And that journey is very interesting because... It's passion that's driving you. It's, it's purpose and passion that makes you who you are. So if you are a guitar player and you want to put out an album, okay, and you want to really express that, you, you've got the ability now to do that. You can use things like, um, I mean, just Kickstarter, for example, as mm-hmm. a way to perhaps fund some of these creative things and then build upon the success of that is just one example. But for a new speaker, really, you can, or, or a person looking to maybe make a change, mm-hmm. I think that for sure you can identify what is it that moves you and what is it that makes you more authentic so that you are more real and that when you tell a story, it comes across as not just I'm doing this because it's the trend of the year or the topic du jour. This is really who you are. But also understand that it does need to be viable and marketable as a business and ultimately have value in the story or the experience that others can take away from that. So what's your final way of of advising our listeners to make some good choices? Most important is be real. Understand your passion and come across that way. Don't compromise. Too often we find ourselves settling, I guess would be the word. Don't settle. And if you're looking at change right now and change is happening in your life, business isn't good, you need to find ways to modify your business, your plan. Don't be afraid of that change. In fact, embrace it. Grab it by the handlebars and, and ride it and stay curious. Ask questions and wonder. These are the things that can actually help you find your way and find your path and go on your journey so that you can then ultimately be who you are. Thank you, Alan Carl. Thank you, Jim. You bet. Now past NSA president, business owner, and speaker, Sam Silverstein. Well, I've, I've loved watching your growth and watching your service for NSA over all these years. Now, when you first started out, what were you doing? Well, when I first started out, I had a a manufacturing company, manufacturing windows and doors. And well, there's a logical progression. Absolutely. <laughs> there always is. And I decided I wanted to share a message and mm-hmm. really position myself to make a difference. And so the first thing I did was I wrote a book and I started speaking. And so I still had the manufacturing company and I was 
speaking on the side, so to speak, as well as um, selling my first book and doing that whole routine. I spoke a lot in the course of my business because I was dealing with home improvement companies. And so I would go in and actually do sales training and help them be more effective in the home, help them close sales. Mm -hmm. And so I had a lot of speaking in the course of my business, but that's not what I was focusing on when I was really speaking around the book. Okay. So you were reaching outside. Absolutely. Yeah. And for the first 11 years, I fell into the trap of doing a lot of things for a lot of people. And it was because I had those skill set. So I knew sales. And my, my heart and my love was in personal growth and personal development, as you know. And then yep. yeah, I was dealing with creative marketing and, and relationship building because I had skill sets there. But unfortunately, nobody really knew me for anything, not even my speaker friends. They couldn't recommend me because they didn't know exactly what it was that I did. And my career, I, I would say the first major change in my career was uh, nine years ago, listening to Joe Calloway give what I think is 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 a landmark speech for NSA. And, the epic let go speech, right? Yeah, pick a lane, you know, lane. let go, pick a lane, decide what it is you're going to do and do it really great. And it was at that point that when I looked at everything that I did, I realized, in my opinion, that it all comes down to accountability. And literally, that's when my whole No More Excuses trademark was created, the brand, yep. and my message around accountability started evolving at that point. And so for the last nine years, I've seen the world through one set of lenses. And by doing that, that focus has helped me go significantly deeper into a topic than I could otherwise and allows me to be known for my topic. You know you branded when when people think of an issue, they think of your name, and when they think of your name, they think of the issue. That's what I see happening yeah. around accountability now, so it's exciting. But here's the issue. The issue is what is it that you're passionate about? As you know, what is it that you that you really believe in? Where's where is the core of your message? And then how deep can you take that take that message? And I don't care what the subject matter is, that's 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 irrelevant. But the idea is how deep can I go that I can make a difference so that people want to bring me in to help make a difference in the organization. Sure. So once you've helped a company or an organization create and learn to sustain an accountable culture, gosh, the benefits are endless. Well, it goes straight towards employee engagement. It goes straight towards increase in productivity. It goes straight towards increases in customer satisfaction. It goes straight towards a reduction in, um, in safety issues and improved safety environments. And Legal. ultimately, it goes directly to the bottom line. And that's what we're yeah. able to do is attach it straight to the bottom line. Let's shift lanes now. You've come through NSA as a new member in 93, all the way to the presidency of the organization. You're still vitally involved in NSA. You're here at the meetings. Why? You know, thinking on their behalf, as our listeners, some of them are involved, some of them aren't. Why? Is it really a smart use of my time? What do you think? Well, it would be very difficult for me to tell a client that they should be investing in the personal development of their people if I didn't invest in my own personal development. <laughs> so... NSA is one of those things that I do. It's not the only thing that I do, but it's one of the most significant things that I do to invest in myself. What would you say to the people who say, well, I'd get more involved in NSA, but I don't really know anybody? When you put yourself out, when you make an effort, you meet people. And this is a very warm inviting environment. Anyone that has problems meeting people here, you just need to keep at it because we all want to meet new people. I don't yeah. want to just come here and see my old friends. I do want to see my old friends, but you know what? I just met somebody new this morning and I'm really looking forward to following up with him and uh, building a relationship. Those relationships, who knows where they're going to go? Yeah. You know, we get 
to speak for so many different organizations, many of them which are associations, obviously. And so we see how they interact with each other. And at no place is it like NSA. I believe that, that your strength is your weakness, so that the sword is sharpened on both sides. Okay. One of our strengths is we develop these incredible relationships. The weakness side of it is that I can be so engrossed sometimes in a, in a conversation with you or with Phil or Susan or whoever it is that I'm talking with it, I might not notice that somebody's going by and I might not invite them into the conversation the way that I should. Yeah. And so that's something we have to be aware of as well. The thing to remember at NSA is that our intentions are such that it's, it's built around being inclusive and mm-hmm. building these relationships. And if you contribute you know, be a part of what's going on. You wake up and all of a sudden, you know, you're three, four, five years down the line, you have an incredible network of friends, people that you can call, share your troubles with, find solutions, and make a difference for them at the same time. Well, your career has been an inspiring career and continues to be. And I, I just want to encourage all our listeners to take time to get to know Sam Silverstein, because as you get to know him, you're going to find a, a good friend and a great professional colleague. Thank you, Jim. It's been my honor. Thanks, Sam. Here's the first of two interviews with Bill Backrack. This one covers how he built his business. Bill Backrack, something you've done that I admire is, is you set out to not only build a business, but to dominate your industry with that business or that aspect of your industry. Could you tell us about that process? Because you've, you've truly achieved what you set out to achieve, even though it may look different than you expected it would. Uh, Bruce Springsteen has a great quote, and I think I'm going to get this almost exactly right. He says, more than rich, more than famous, more than even being happy, I wanted to be great. And I can really relate to that. I, I just wanted to be really, really good at helping financial advisors be enormously successful, first and foremost as measured by what they actually do for their clients. And the truth be told, I really didn't recognize how difficult that would be when I got started. <laughs> uh, so and on the one hand, if I'd known how difficult it was going to be, would I have actually done it? It sort of evolved in increments. and so. To, to really be great at helping other people be great. You've got to figure some things out, and most of them are extraordinarily challenging to figure out. So that was the path I was on. I want to train the best financial advisors in the world and those who aspire to be. Mm-hmm. And then the pieces had to come together to be able to do that. Uh, so speaking is a component of that, but I think as we all know, we're lucky if people remember a few tidbits from a speech that yeah. we give. And, and we'll help them get there with just speaking. One of the things you differentiated early on was the difference between selling as it had been known and selling as you were uh, recommending it to your your clients. Could you explain that to us? You know, certainly nothing personal derogatory to anybody who uses the word selling or does sales training. You mean like me? You know, <laughs> present company included. Um, and you guys really laid the groundwork for this, relationship selling, uh-huh. you know, that idea. Uh, Tony Alessandra and you and Phil Wexler and Rick Barrera, the whole non-manipulative selling, I think laid the groundwork for this. What I talk about is building high-trust client relationships. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, uh, there's a lot in sort of a traditional selling model as it's known that can actually mitigate against trust. 
So I, I really differentiate. I distinguished between those two things, building a high trust client relationship and doing what a lot of people would call selling features and benefits, presentations, handling objections, closing. When somebody trusts you, a lot of that really isn't necessary. And particularly think yeah. about think about my business. Like we're talking about being trusted where somebody says, I'm going to give you all of my money and put the achievement of my future goals in your hands, certainly everything that relates to, to money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you think about, if you're listening to this, chances are there aren't many people you've met in financial services who you would trust. So I set out to really train financial professionals to be their clients' trusted advisors and that those people would then follow their advice and implement to achieve their goals. So I started as a financial advisor and then I developed a methodology when I was uh, fairly young out of necessity. How do I get rich people in La Jolla to become my clients? So I had to figure it out on my own. So what I essentially did is I blended everything I learned in personal and professional development with everything I was learning about helping people with their money, and I put those things together. And shockingly enough, nobody had done that yet. It was really kind of it was really kind of crazy. I had these two things I was yeah. passionate about that I was just a young guy in my twenties, very impressionable, putting these things together. And I thought it's really interesting. So it turned out other people wanted to know how to do that. So I started just teaching my friends to help them. They were like. You're not the smartest guy in this company. You're not the most technically competent guy. How come you're getting all the clients? Yeah. And so that, that methodology has evolved into values-based financial planning. But what happened is I started training, and then I started getting invited to speak. And at first I turned down all the speaking because I didn't think it would work. Oh, you want me to come and talk for 90 minutes? Well, that won't have any impact. <laughs> and then, you know, honestly, I just caved into the money. They started offering me more and more money for less and less of my content. And I said, well, okay, I'll try. And then for a while, I was doing uh, over 100 uh, speeches a year. And honestly, that left me a little empty. I was having a little bit of impact for a lot of people. And then I created the learning systems, which I learned from somebody at NSA. Mm-hmm. Packaged the videos and the audios. And then it was video cassettes and audio yep. cassettes and a workbook. Put that in a box and sell it at the back of the room or get the client to buy it. And then people were buying the boxes, but I was speaking so much in one industry that people would walk up and they'd say, Bill, I love your stuff. And I said, why not? You know, first you're kind of like, oh, they love my stuff. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And and then I would ask deeper questions like, so tell me about something specific that you're using. And they would go blank. It was like they loved the stuff, but they weren't really implementing. Then I asked a really crazy question. What results have you been getting? as a result of implementing something you've learned from me. Oops. And that really went blank. Yeah. I just I hired somebody to just call everybody who owned the material. So a month ago, I invested $500 in a set of books and tapes and videos, and we just wanted to touch base with you and see if you've opened the package. That's <laughs> a pretty basic question. <laughs> and it was very, and, and yeah. they'd usually laugh and go, well, to tell you the truth, well, it's in the trunk of my car. It's in the garage. Oh, it's right here on the shelf in my office. Yeah. And I literally hired a guy just say, and his whole job was to get people to open the box and say, okay, so take the book out, unshrink wrap it. All right, mm-hmm. so take that home and just maybe read a chapter tonight before you go to bed. So open, unshrink wrap the cassettes and bring those to your car. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and that video, take the video and open the shrink wrap and maybe set that by your VCR. Exactly. 
and exactly. then and say so, baby steps. So could I touch base with you in a month and see how you're doing? And that was how we became a multi-million dollar training and development company. That's it was just as a as saying, hey, we don't just I just don't want to be a talking head on the stage who can brag about my sales numbers in the back of the room. Yeah. What I want to do is I really want to help people be great financial advisors. And then from there, we started putting all the pieces and parts together, and it's evolved into a comprehensive business model. Now it's client service, client acquisition, leadership, and work habits. Uh, people pay us uh, thousands of dollars a month on a four-year contract. They come to San Diego four times a year for four years for six days wow. of practice and immersion. Mm -hmm. uh, so Because that's what it takes to really be one of the best uh, in the world. We supplement it with some online and there's some webinars but it's it's pretty it's pretty intensive but it evolved from that what impresses me about it is your commitment to making a difference truly making a difference you know so many of us have committed to being successful but there's a great difference between being in a traditional sense successful and genuinely making a difference for the people you're serving and your commitment to that is is admirable and I appreciate the fact that you've done that. There are moments where I go, I'm so happy I made that decision because I get a chance to really live with a small number of people, smaller than giving speeches to thousands of people in comparison to that, and ha make an enormous difference in their life. But honestly, there are other days where I go, but it's really nice to just get paid to give a speech. Yeah. You show up, you get paid, you speak, they laugh at your jokes, they give you applause at the end, and you're done. Food for serious thought and, and a great example of how a business like ours can evolve in ways you wouldn't have ever expected. So thank you very much, Bill Backright. You're welcome, Jim. Thanks for having me. Here's my best friend and speaking colleague, Tony Alessandro. I'd like to explore for our listeners how you made strategic decisions throughout your career. Walk us through that thought process okay. so we can show folks how to think about their own careers. Well, when I got my doctorate in 76, I accepted a teaching position at the University of San Diego. And But while I was there, I actually started building this speaking business a little bit at a time. Uh, and it got to the point where in 1978, the dean of the university came up to me and said, Tony, you got to make a decision. You got to be a speaker or you got to be a professor, but you're not going to be both. And of course, that's when I gave my resignation. <laughs> I finished out that, that semester to December. And in January of 1979, I was a full time speaker, you know, even though I didn't have full time calendar. And I think it was that month that I'm speaking at this conference in San Diego. It's a, a Century 21 convention. And one of the things they did Dave is they gave... Middleditch Dave Middleditch. Dave right. Trainer. They yep. gave us booths. Yep. And who's next to me in a booth? This guy, Jim Cathcart. And of course, during the breaks, Jim and I are chatting. If you could teach me this, I'll teach you that. And we kind of went back and forth. And lo and behold, uh, we became business colleagues. And then actual business partners. Jim and I had a big decision to make and we were deciding should I move to Tulsa or should he move to San Diego. That was about a 13 second conversation. <laughs> uh, he moved to San Diego. We flipped a coin. I lost. So it was Cathcart Alessandra instead of the more traditional alphabetical. <laughs> he, he wouldn't buy that. And we did a we collaborated on a number of things. I mean books and audio video programs. 
it was just incredible. And we did that to 1985 when we kind of split. But still best friends. Right. I started, you know, really speaking a lot. And I did that through the 90s. Well, in 96, what I felt was my big book came out called The Platinum Rule. It was with Warner Books. And that's when I put the Platinum Rule uh, behavioral style online assessment online. Mm-hmm. It was a paper-based assessment up to that point. And I, st- and, and I gave it for free. And I was getting over 10,000 people a month who were taking this for free. Wow. And uh, after a while, somebody said to me, hey, yep. 10,000 people a month, you know, that's uh, over 100,000 a year. Why don't you charge for this? <laughs> well, <laughs> it was a blinding light of the obvious. Uh, <laughs> And it was in 2000 that I made several decisions. Number one was to take my entire staff and spend them off. This was with your cooperation and collaboration uh, where I I spun off my entire staff. Jim and I signed on with them as speakers where we pay them a percentage. We got them two others, two other speakers. And uh, that way we had no fixed overhead. It was all variable, which was great which really was a very freeing process. Uh, But also, it was that year, 2000, I spun off Holly. We became sort of subcontractors or contractors to her, Mm -hmm. customers of hers. And that's when I said, you know what? I'm going to start really investing my money in building this assessment platform where I can build assessments for people, I can put people's assessments on the platform and get a fee for every assessment that's taken. Mm -hmm. And as that business grows, this is my thinking here, as that business grows, I'm going to commensurately lower the number of speeches. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and one day, uh, basically get down to one or two speeches a month and have the bulk of my revenue coming in from the assessment business. But uh, you know, one of the big things, one of the big themes in my life has been diversification of my business, trying to get uh, passive recurring revenue. Then as technology improved, there are other ways to diversify your business. Of course, the online assessments, online learning, you know, programs that were, uh, you know, where people would pay a monthly fee to get uh, subscription programs and so on. membership sites. Membership sites. You've tried, you've experimented with virtually everything. Everything, everything. And, you know, I I jokingly say this, but it is is absolutely true that when people look at my career and, and, and say, wow, look at how much you've done and look at how much you've accomplished, all they see really are the accomplishments. They don't see the five times or six times the amount of accomplishments that I failed. Mm-hmm. But I'm always up there at bat. You know the old uh, saying, you know, if you're in the in the major leagues, all you have to do is every three times up, get a hit, and you're in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, you know, for us, you know, maybe one out of five if mm-hmm. we can hit on it. But my whole thing is diversifying into all kinds of revenue streams, constantly looking for people who can deliver my uh, uh, digital assets, my, mm-hmm. uh, where I can lease the assets to people. I get... Uh, royalty streams. Uh, the assessments are a very big business. I've invested in business businesses where I'm mm-hmm. hoping to get a return on that when those businesses are sold. But always looking for ways to offset 
any potential downturns as we have seen at least twice in you know since 2000 uh, but now I'm at a point where I don't have to give a single speech and I have all my personal and business overhead covered I don't beautiful. have to worry about a thing beautiful but you're still aggressively exploring new opportunities always you're, there's very little limitation to what you're dabbling in you know constantly seeing which is the best to, to really bet on and I think that's been a big key to your success. One of the things that I think people should think about is why, why do all these opportunities come to me? Well, the fact is they don't come to me. I'm on the phone a lot, every day, talking to buddies. Hey, hey Jim, what are you doing differently? Hey, yeah. Don Hudson, what, are you, what, what have you been doing differently in the last month or so? I'm always looking for things. I read a lot. I read business magazines. I, you know, I'm online reading things. I, I, I read three or four newspapers every day. And when something catches my eye, I let it you know, filter a little and decide, am I going to jump into it and try it? But I'm constantly up at bat, swinging the bat, mm -hmm. uh, trying new things. Uh, I've often been accused of not being on the cutting edge, but the bleeding edge, <laughs> which is way ahead of when things yeah. really are going to take take effect. But at least I'm out there looking for things. And, and I think our listeners at VOE should really start talking to their colleagues, finding out what they're doing, scanning publications, talk to our colleagues, go to the meetings, have the hallway conversations, listen to every VOE. If there's a particular interview on VOE that really strikes a chord, why not send an email or make a phone call to that person mm -hmm. uh, and see if you can dig a little bit deeper, find out what they're doing and how you can apply it in your own life. And listen to it two or three times. Absolutely. Yeah. Take notes. Uh, but but that that's the key. Yeah. I just, I'm out there talking to people. One other thing, and I, we can wrap up with this. You have, if I were a casual listener to this, I would say, oh my God, well, this guy's a dynamo. I mean, I'll never be like that. I don't have that much energy. I always scratched my head about people who worked, you know, 24 7 to take care of their family, uh, to take care of their retirement, and finally, when they retire, uh, they live one year and die, and they can't enjoy <laughs> life. I always wanted, you know, I've listened to people talk about, you know, balancing your life and they don't balance their life. You know, they're out there talking about balancing your life. They don't walk the talk. Uh, and from the very beginning, I always wanted balance in my life. I wanted to spend time with my kids. I wanted to spend time with my wife. I wanted to spend time with my friends. Uh, I wanted time for me. You, you have to intentionally make time for these things. You just can't say, you know, I'm, I'm doing all this work for my family. And because you're working so hard, your family doesn't even know who you are and you get divorced. It, it's happened so many times oh, yeah. that we've seen in our career sure. that it, it just you have to force yourself to balance your time and your life. Beautiful. Tony Alessandro, you are a man to admire, and you're the best friend I've got in the world. Well, thank you. Likewise. Thank you, Jim. Here's a message from our president, Ron Carr. When I was inducted as president, many past presidents offered me the advice to enjoy the journey because it goes by very fast. Very fast? That is an understatement. This year went by so fast, it feels like we traveled at the speed of light. And in terms of enjoying the journey, 
Well, it was indeed a trip of a lifetime. I was thrilled to take on the position of president of NSA, but I had no idea how much it would change my awareness of this profession and how deep and wide and powerful NSA is. I am convinced that Cavett Robert had no idea how impactful the National Speakers Association would someday be. For one thing, the local chapter network in the U.S. is stronger and better than ever. The chapters are invigorated and working hard to effectively represent the NSA brand. This year I traveled to 25 chapters and it was great meeting members in their home state and seeing the effect NSA has on a local level. Thank you to the chapter presidents and boards for making my visit special and memorable. Besides its influence on a domestic level, one of the startling reminders of Cabot's legacy was how all of the International Speakers Association, which came out of NSA and are now members of the Global Speakers Federation, embraced the spirit of Cabot. Every international conference I attended, from Australia to Singapore and Malaysia, from South Africa to Holland, the UK, Germany, and Canada. They all emulated the best practices of NSA while at the same time incorporating their local flavor. I cannot begin to explain how awesome a feeling it was to walk in Cavett's footsteps and those of my predecessors as I represented NSA. Looking back on this year, we've had many successes to celebrate. I want to thank all of my team members for sacrificing their time and putting forth efforts that made this a great year. Our meetings chairs have produced innovative and highly successful events. The January Platform Profit Lab was a first of a kind for that topic and not only did it sell out, but it also generated the most revenue ever for a lab event in the history of NSA. Our winter meeting in Tampa was a huge success with the two tracks on leveraging IP and platform excellence. The number of attendees brought us back to attendance figures usually realized before the Great Recession. And the publishing lab in New York was also sold out and it too exceeded attendee expectations. And yes, by the time you will hear this recording, Perform 2014 will be a thing of the past and will have exceeded all of our expectations. Between the meetings doing well, our new apps, new branding initiatives, a renewed chapter structure and support, an academy that is thriving in all areas, plus our VOE and magazine publications, we can easily say that NSA has survived the Great Recession and is well positioned for continued success in the future. Speaking of VOE, I want to give a major shout out to Jim Cathcart and his team for the dedication and efforts they have put forth in producing these high quality VOE programs. And a very special thanks to the staff and our CEO Stacy Techner for all their hard work in supporting us. I also want to thank all of you, our listeners and members. Many of you have written me or told me in person how you have appreciated the tips I gave in my presidential messages. Just remember, we all have tips. Let's leverage the best practices of each other so that, in the words of Cavett, we do continue to build a bigger pie. Like any organization, our strength lies not in the efforts of a few, but the continued involvement of all members. It is when our members are engaged, showing up, and helping each other, that is when the association is at its best. So, as I say my last goodbye as your president, Please do not think of this as an end of a period. Rather, it is a continuation of a process and plan as I hand over the gavel to my good friend and colleague, Shep Hyken. Thank you for the privilege of serving you. 
Ron, thank you for your leadership this year. This month, we have special bonus recordings that are available in the mobile app. Since the CD is limited to only a certain number of minutes and we had extra interviews for you, we put them in the mobile app. So if you've downloaded the NSA VOE mobile app, you can listen to these in your mobile device. We have an interview with Bill Backrack on how he trained for the Ironman competition, part two of the NSA Next Generation panel, Mary Loverdi tells how she reinvented her life, and Greg Williams offers his final Glad You Asked segment with the Liz Green about the NSA XY group. It's been a real privilege to be host of the VOE team this year. The team consists of Alina Ettringer and Dr. Roger Clodfelter of High Point University's Nito Kubain School of Communication, John Schwartz, Vinny Borelli, who's done our technical edits, Greg Williams, our chief listening officer, Barbara Paris and the NSA staff, and Rocky Heyer, who produces our VOE each month. This month's soundtrack music comes from Bruce Turkell. It's his song, The Fire Never Died. Now let's reignite the economic boom as well as revitalizing the group we know as the Baby Boom with my signature song, Resume the Boom. Thank you, NSA. This is your host, Jim Cathcart, signing off. Resume the boom It's time to call the roll again Resume the boom We'll rock and roll to the very end Resume the boom We still have our dreams, sweetheart Restart, resume the boom The baby boomers are headed for retirement Too many people are letting go They seem to think Achievement time is over I'm here to tell you that it's time to grow So resume the boom It's time to call the roll again Resume the boom We'll rock and roll to the very end Resume the boom We still have our dreams, sweetheart Restart, resume the boom For way too long I've been headed for the exit Way too long, I've forgotten to be me Too long now, I've looked for strength from others When all along I had the strength in me So resume the boom I swear I'll never grow old again Resume the boom I'll rock and roll to the very end Resume the boom I still have my dreams, sweetheart Restart, resume the boom I still have a dream While those without one are in paradise up above Goal achievement is a thing I really love I still have a dream, sweetheart Downstream, but you were put here to truly make a difference.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.